Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Dr. Liebens, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is Maimonides' Negative Theology and Wittgenstein. So to begin, what exactly is negative theology? The basic idea, especially as it comes out in in the Rambam, in Maimonides, um, it's something like the view that God, to the extent that he can be described at all, can only be described negatively. So uh, you're, you're on safer grounds saying what God isn't than you are saying what God is. The Rambam is not alone. Um, in adopting, that's Maimonides, he's not alone in adopting an, a negative theology, uh, which he does very explicitly uh, in the Guide to the Perplexed. In fact, um, almost the entirety of the first volume of the three-volume work, the Guide to the Perplexed, is dedicated to kind of an exposition of negative theology. But Maimonides isn't the first such figure in the Jewish world. Um, Sa'ad Jaga'on, uh, who was perhaps the first rabbinic Jewish philosopher, systematic Jewish philosopher, or the first rabbi to be well-versed in non-Jewish philosophy as well as Judaism and Jewish sources. He also adopted a very radical negative theology. And you also see in the mystical tradition. So there are places in the Tikkun Zohar and there are places in, in, in the mystical tradition that seem to adopt negative theology. In fact, there are some people who think that uh, negative theology... Uh, the view that God is best described in terms of what he isn't is actually one of the defining features in general of mysticism. Not that Maimonides was a mystic, but that you can't be a mystic if you think that God is describable. And so I'll just say one more thing where, uh, in answer to your, the, your first question, Benjamin, it, is that more profound, I think, than saying God is only describable in terms of what he isn't. I think at the heart of apophaticism or negative theology is really the view that God can't be described at all. Um, So he can be described best with negative terminology, but there's some very deep sense. And and this is central to this worldview that God can't be described at all. So could you give us some examples um, how a negative theologian would proceed in, in philosophical discussion? So, yes, I will. I'll deliberately, I suppose, be charitable at the beginning um, because there are some very big problems with negative theology, which I'm just going to brush under the carpet until we've got the view, you know, um, clearly in front of us. So, yeah, I'll try and pretend, so to speak, that I am a a standard negative theologian and I'll give you the sort of argument that you might find. Um, and in fact, I'll give you the argument that you do find in, in Emunot Vedeot, uh, uh, the book of opinions and beliefs of Sajigaon, the major philosophical work of Sajigaon. And he says something like this. Look, God is the creator of the universe. If you believe in God, one of the things, one of the functions that this belief um, is supposed to play um, and God is a posit, a philosophical posit. And as a philosophical posit, he is, he is given a job to do. He is posited in order to explain the existence of everything else. He's the foundation of all being and the creator of the universe. Now, if that's what he is, uh, 
then presumably he created every property. So, you know, um, philosophers tend to distinguish between um, particulars and properties. So particulars are uh, unique individual um, entities and properties are repeatable character traits or characteristics. So I have a red ball. The red ball itself is uh, is a particular, it's a particular ball, but it has properties, the property of redness, the property of roundness, and those properties you can find in other particulars. Uh, so, you know, I have a blue ball and the blue ball shares some of the properties uh, that the red ball has. So we have properties and we have particulars. Now, if God is responsible for everything that exists, then presumably he's responsible for the existence, not just of particulars, but he's also responsible for the existence of properties to the extent that they exist at all. And and so the argument goes, well, if God created them all, then he can't he can't have any properties, or at least he couldn't have had any properties before he made them. And moreover, we can make a distinction between essential properties and accidental properties. So your accidental properties are the properties that you have, but you didn't have to have them. So I'm five foot nine tall, five, five feet and nine inches tall. But, but my grandpa always told me that if I'd done my stretching exercises, um, I could have been taller. So I could have been, you know, six foot three, maybe, um, or, you know, on a different diet, maybe I'd have been five foot, th- five foot three instead of five foot nine. So the height that I have is a property, but it's an accidental property. I could have had different heights and still have been me. But we tend to think that some of the properties I have are kind of essential to who I am or to what I am. That I, that, that, so Aristotle, for instance, thought that all human beings were essentially rational animals so if they stopped being either an animal or they stopped being rational they'd stop being a human being now uh, sadly i've had different experiences of humanity than aristotle and i'm not convinced that rationality is at all an essential feature of our species uh, would that it were so halavai as they say in hebrew but what i've been trying to give you is the distinction between essential properties and accidental properties now the idea is if god created all properties then he can't have any essential properties because he existed before there were any properties, right? So he doesn't need any properties in order to exist. So he doesn't have any essential properties. And normally when we try to describe a thing, we try to describe it in terms of the properties that it has. And if you want to describe a thing's essence, you're going to try and describe it in terms of the essential properties that it has. Uh, well, God doesn't have any, and he can't have any, because he's responsible for the existence of all properties. And therefore, you can't really talk about God. You can't say what he is, at least not what he is essentially. You might be able to talk about the ways in which he's related to the world non-essentially, like he's the creator of the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in actual fact, and I, I won't lay this out for you now, Sajjagat on was of the opinion you can't even say that much. You can't even say how God is related to the world. The Rambam, um, Maimonides has a slightly different um, argument in favor of negative theology, but it's clearly in the same family and it goes something like this. God is the creator of the universe, but because he's the creator of the universe, he must be simple. And simple doesn't mean what 
uh, uh, some of your listeners might think it means. It doesn't mean like dumb or stupid. You know, in on Seder night, on on uh, on the first night of Pesach, we have the four the four children, the four sons who ask their questions, and one of them is the simple son, the ta- Tam. Well, there's different the, the words. The word "simple," just like the word "tam," actually in Hebrew, it can, can can mean a number of different things. What what the Rambam means when he says that God is simple is that he doesn't have parts. That's all. Okay, some things have parts. So, like you take you you take your watch off your wrist and you break it into you know you, you break into it, you'll find all these cogs and 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 hands and and levers and whatever. Those are the parts of the watch. So the the watch is not a simple entity. Um, God, by contrast, needs to be simple. Why does he need to be simple? Well, one of the reasons we believe in him, aside from the revelation at Har, at Har Sinai, aside from our experiences with God, one of the reasons we believe in God is because he explains the existence of other things, right? Again, similar to Sajigan, he's the creator of the universe. But one of the main functions of such a creator will be to explain why the parts of complex entities come together to form the entities that they do, right? So you have, you know, you have multiple parts. You've got a right arm, a left arm, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, most material objects uh, can be divided into their constituent parts. But one way of thinking about God is he is, so to speak, the being that holds all of the subatomic uh, uh, particles together to create atoms. He's the thing holding things together. Now, if he too were complex, if he had parts, you'd have the question, well, what's holding him together, right? So he can't be. He must be simple. He's where the buck stops, right? And he is where explanation stops. So he needs to be simple and not complex. Now, to cut a long story short, the, the Rambam, Maimonides thought that any sentence of a language that, that's used to describe some state of affairs or other has a grammar, right? So language has structure. So I said, you know, the ball is red. You have a noun phrase, the ball. It's actually a complex noun phrase. And then you have a predicate, is red. So there's a grammar, syntax to that sentence. And the Rambam thought that when you use language truly, um, the structure of your sentence maps on to the structure of the under the underlying structure of the state of affairs you're describing using language. Now, God is simple. He has no structure. But yet every meaningful sentence of a language has a grammar, has structure. So as soon as you try to describe God, you're, you're guilty of imposing a type of structure upon something which is innately, inherently simple. Hence, God is indescribable. And this, this is the, the royal road to negative theology. So once uh, we've established um, negative theology, um, you mentioned before that they face major problems. So could you describe what that major problem is? Sure. In, in a sense, ne- negative theology was the orthodoxy among Jewish philosophers. You, you've got on. you've got the Rambam. I said you've even got in the mystical tradition. So, you know, when, when, when all of those people are agreeing, you've got to kind of um, think, OK, this is, this is a big deal. And in fact, medieval Jewish philosophy was very what you might call ecumenical. 
Jewish philosophers were reading Muslim philosophers. Muslim philosophers were reading Jewish philosophers. They were both reading Christian philosophers, etc., etc. And in fact, across all of those Abrahamic traditions, they disagreed on lots of things, but they agreed on the whole that, that negative theology is getting something right, that these arguments that I've been uh, giving to you that are supposed to put severe limitations on on how we're able to describe God or how well we're able to describe God. This was considered orthodoxy. However, uh, there are two problems. And in the school of philosophy to which I belong as a you know, practicing academic philosopher in the professional university setting. I'm, I'm an analytical philosopher. An analytical philosophy, when it started, or actually not long after it started, it became very anti-religion. Thankfully, from about the 1970s onwards, a group of very well-respected analytical philosophers, respected for their contributions to other areas of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, logic, philosophy of language, turned out to be theists. And um, that made theism all of a sudden much more respectable within the tradition of philosophy to which I belong. And from the 1970s onwards, philosophy of religion, though, though I'm sure we theists in the philosophy departments of analytic uh, uh, university uh, philosophy departments i'm sure we're still a minority but we we're no longer kind of a um a look down upon kind of um nebuch oh look at those ridiculous superstitious theists no it's a respectable position in analytic philosophy departments i think um one of the people that pioneered this kind of resurgence of theism was a man called alvin plantinga and he thinks that negative theology is ridiculous, right? Now, now uh, he's not alone. There were people in the Jewish tradition as well. Rav Chastai Kreskes is a very, very important medieval Jewish philosopher who was the, the rabbi's rabbi in many ways. Um, you know, Rav, uh, you're going to think of the late, um, the late medieval philosophers in the Jewish world. You're thinking of Rav Yosef Albo, Rav Duran, uh, even the Abarbanel, all of these people saw themselves as either direct or indirectly students of Crescus. And Crescus was, was very put off by uh, the orthodoxy of negative theology. So what I want to give to you is both the kind of Crescus type reasons for being worried about negative theology and the Plantinga reasons, the Plantinga type reasons. OK, so the Crescus type reasons are just this. And it's kind of obvious. And the Rambam, this is why the Rambam has to spend a whole volume of the Moranavuchim laying laying out the the, the the view. This is why a you know a religious Jew who believes in in negative theology can't just write one paragraph, put forward the argument and say, there we go, uh, negative theology is true. You need to write a whole volume of your book to defend it. Why? Because the Torah doesn't look like a book of negative theology, right? And this is part of Crescus's issue, right? The Torah describes God at length. And we take ourselves to know things about God. And we take our, ourselves to know things about what God wills for us and wants for us and commands us. Um, it's, not just, it's not just that um, there are crude anthropomorphisms it seems in the torah you know descriptions of god's hand descriptions of god's body parts and we take ourselves to think that god is incorporeal that god doesn't have a body so there are clearly metaphors there but but once you cash out all of the metaphors and you 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 hope to arrive 
at the Torah's view of the sort of being that God is, it doesn't seem to be a being that defies description. On the contrary, uh, it's a being that we, uh, you know, about whom we, we know quite a lot and we have thick descriptions. So how do you square um, the God of the cosmological argument? The cosmological argument is the argument that, that uh, there must be a God to explain the existence of the cosmos. The God of the cosmological argument, according to Sajigaon and according to Maimonides, has to be a God who is above description, beyond description. But the God of the Torah, the God of Moshe Rabbeinu, does not seem to be such a God. So how do you square that? Right. So that's one issue. Another issue that, that I think Plantinga would, I th- Plantinga shares this concern uh, uh, of Crescus. You know, Plantinga is not a, a, not a, a pious Jew. He's a devout Christian, but um, he also sees the the, the, the difficulty of reconciling the God of these medieval apophatic theologians with, with revealed scripture. Um, a problem that you get in Gersonides, in the Ralbag, um, in, his, in his magnum opus, in his great philosophical work, Milchamot Hashem, he, he raises the following issue. He says, okay, the Rambam, you you tell us that we can't say what God is, but we are allowed to say what he isn't. Well, okay, so I I say he's not ignorant, right? Fine, but doesn't that just mean he is wise? And if you tell me, no, 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 it doesn't mean that, right? Then isn't it the case that he's also not wise, (laughs) right? Right, if he's completely beyond description so then why why do you Maimonides tell me say he's not ignorant say he's say he's not nasty when I could just as equally well if he's really beyond description say he's not wise and he's not good but you don't want me to do that right um so it seems a bit kind of arbitrary or ad hoc or so that's an another type uh, uh, uh another stream of concerns but I think more fundamental than any of these, the things that I think should really worry your listeners if they're at all attracted to negative theology is the sort of worry that Plantinga makes most um, mileage out of. And it's that negative theology, taken literally, is always going to be self-defeating in a way that philosophers will call self-referential incoherence. What do I mean? Well, if God is truly indescribable, then I shouldn't be able to describe him as indescribable, right? If every, you know, there are many different ways to read the Moran of Uchim. It's a very, very difficult book. But on some plausible readings, the Rambam does deep down believe that to some extent, every single sentence about God is more or less deceptive, there are some sentences that are less deceptive than others and therefore they're kind of kosher. But basically any sentence is more or less deceptive because it imposes structure upon something that can't be structured. Now, um, if that's your view, then how do you even say it? Because you're saying um, that every sentence about God is somewhat deceptive, but that's a sentence about God. And surely you, you think that's true. And if you don't think it's true, then then negative theology isn't true. So it's a, it's a view that undermines itself that that i think is the is the biggest problem because 
it's a problem that any philosopher should share. Um, it doesn't depend upon the revelation of Har Sinai, in which we have a Torah and we have a Masorah that tells us all this stuff about God. Just by reason alone, we can see that negative theology is incoherent. So now that we've established um, planting, going, crash the problem with um, negative theology, I assume <laughs> this is where Wittgenstein comes in. So first, yeah. first, of, first of all, who, who was, for our listeners, who was Wittgenstein and, and what part okay. does he play in this, in this equation? Okay, so, so Ludwig Wittgenstein um, was uh, an Austrian aristocrat, really. He came, he came from very, very wealthy uh, background, F- fascinating family actually, uh, of Jewish descent. Um, his family before he was born, and I, 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 I'm, I don't want to say anything untrue. I'd ha- and, I, and it's been a while since I brushed up on his biography, but I think it wasn't even his parents. But e- even uh, bef- before his parents, there had been conversion to Catholicism. So he brought up. He was brought up um, as a as a kind of not particularly devout Catholic of Jewish ethnicity in Austria. In fact, a random piece of trivia, he went to primary school with Adolf Hitler. Um, so um, I don't know how well known that fact is. But he, he became interested in mathematics. And in the end, he ended up in Manchester. I know Benjamin has some roots in Manchester too. He moved to Manchester to, to pursue uh, aeronautical engineering. And this was... Um, at the turn of, you know, the very, very early years of the 20th century, he started to become interested in philosophy whilst in Manchester. And his interests were in in mathematics, what are numbers, right? And what is it that makes mathematics true? And um, this led him to meet with this great uh, German philosopher of math and, and mathematician and philosopher of mathematics, Got- Gottlob Frege, University of Jena in Germany. He went to have a fateful meeting with him in which Frege said, if you want to study philosophy and mathematics, you need to take yourself off to Cambridge and become a student of Bertrand Russell, which is what Wittgenstein did. Um, and I- I'm a Russellian. Uh, Bertrand Russell is, 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 is very well known in some theistic circles for his great antagonism towards religion. He was an anti, you know, he was quite anti-religious, uh, perhaps more than an atheist. Uh, he was agnostic, really, but more than that, he was he was like an anti-theist. He was against uh, religion. And yet, I often think that my philosophy is, is um, very close to what might happen had Bertrand Russell believed in God, right? What would the, cons- what would the metaphysical consequences be if you added God in? Uh, to a Russellian philosophy. So Russell's been a big influence over me, dis- despite our uh, strong uh, religious disagreements. Anyway, uh, so I, I, I normally, I, I often take Russell's side in, 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 in various philosophical debates. So I'm going to tell you what people say about Wittgenstein, um, but it's not really what I believe, but it's generally taken to be the case that w- within a few years, Wittgenstein completely outshone his teacher, Russell, and Russell became the student and Wittgenstein very much became the teacher. Uh, like I said, that's not really my view, but it does seem to be the received wisdom. And, and I'd like your 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 uh, um, audience to know what most people think rather than what this eccentric um, philosopher rabbi thinks. So... Um, so that's Wittgenstein, and he wrote he wrote a number of books. In, in fact, two. He most of the things that he published he published after he died. He's been prolific since dying. Um, but when he was actually alive, there were two books that that came out: the Tractatus, Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, um, 
which was which actually was uh, it functioned in his, as his PhD thesis, and it's uh, not often that a PhD thesis. Um, I now know from quite a bit of experience reading PhD theses and having written one. Uh, it's not often that a PhD thesis is a work of genius, uh, but the, the Tractatus Logica Philosophicus was a, an earth-shattering work of genius. And his second book, uh, Philosophical Investigations, marks a complete U-turn. Right, So people often talk about the early Wittgenstein and the late Wittgenstein because as two completely different philosophers, my interest... Uh, in Wittgenstein has always been in the earlier stuff um, uh, in the Tractatus. Uh, so that's who. So that's who Wittgenstein is, right? How he's relevant to our discussion of negative theology is a different question. So he wrote this book, right? Uh, Logico Tractate, Logico um, the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, right? A tractate on logical philosophy, uh, to put it in English. Um, so it's a very, very difficult book. You know, when I started getting into philosophy and from kite, I started uh, philosophy and and religiosity. I I read a lot. And my grandma would always say to me, do you understand that book? You know, I was 16 years old and I was reading like Descartes, uh, Descartes Meditations on First Philosophy. I was like, do you understand that book? And it used to really annoy me. Like, why would I be reading it if I don't understand it? And I remember I, w- I was about the same age and I started to read the Tractatus and, and my grandma was like, do you understand that? Because I, no, I haven't a clue what's going on. I haven't a clue what it's going I didn't, I hated to admit it, but I hadn't a clue what it was going on about. It's a very, very difficult book. It's written in a very terse style, um, heavy on metaphor. Um, and when there isn't metaphor and strange similes being drawn, there's a lot of symbolic logic, a number of mathematical equations that um, where he's working out some some kind of Im- important theorems, uh, predicate calculus and 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 uh, first order propositional logic. Uh, sorry, first order predicate calculus and and propositional logic. Once you get past the difficulty, and I think the only way to do that is is to rely a little bit either on secondary literature or a teacher, which is very often the way. And um, just a complete aside, Benjamin, we, we, live in, um, we live in this internet age where there's so much data accessible at any given time. But I really, personally, I really believe in, in the teacher-student relationship and also in the Rebbe Talmud relationship. And that there's only so much you can learn by looking at a book without having some guidance from people so certainly the tractatus was was a closed book to me until I got to university and I had the benefit of of teachers um, teaching it to me anyway uh, why is it relevant so the main the main um, theme of the book is the relationship between language and the world and in detailing the relationship between language and the world Wittgenstein hoped that he would be able to solve certain puzzles that, that emerge in, in the study of logic. And in fact, he'd be able to give an account of why it is that logic works, right? So, so logic is, is a kind of a mathematics that governs um, the relationship between sentences in a language, just like mathematics governs the relationship between numbers, right? Arithmetic um, governs the relationship between numbers. In a classical syllogism, like all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, 
Socrates is mortal. Those those sentences are related in in a certain way, such that the first two entail uh, the third. And logic is all about the relationship between language. You could ask, why does mathematics work? Why is it true, right? And wh- what's it about? You can ask similar questions about logic. And Wittgenstein's hope was that if he could give uh, a really full account of the relationship between language and the world, and at a very abstract um, level, uh, uh, at a very, you know, at a very from a very general point of view it's not the relationship between english and this world or between dutch and some other possible world it's about what would a world have to look like any world and what would a language have to look like any language if it's really true and possible uh, that 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 a a language can represent a world and he thought if he could give you an account of 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 that of how a world would have to look and how a language would have to function in order for a language to represent a world, he'd be able to tell you a lot about other things too, about what logic is and how logic works and why it works and what truth is and falsehood. And he could just open up everything. That's what the book's about. And yet you get to the end of the book and there's this very enigmatic turn of events, basically, at the end of the book, where he tries to prove that if the book has got things right until this point, and you don't need to know the details, but if he had managed to describe the relationship between language and world accurately until this point, he tried to prove that it follows that one thing nobody would ever be able to describe using language would be how language relates to the world, right? Oh, no, but that's what this whole book's been doing. (laughs) And then he says, oh, so by the lights of my own book, the things I've said up until now have been nonsense. And, And then he says, but I hope that even though it's been nonsense, I have managed to elucidate something. And he talks about, he says, the previous pages in this book should serve like rungs of a ladder. And you climb up to the top of the ladder and finally you see the world aright. But then you kick away the ladder because you see uh, the faults there in the ladder. So why is it relevant? I'll say this much and, and then we'll see where, where, this, where this leads us. There is a a structural analogy between the Tractatus and the Moranavuchim, the Guide for the Perplexed. There's a structural analogy between the Tractatus and Emunot Vedeot, Sajigaton's Book of Opinions and Beliefs. What's the structural analogy? It's this. You have a book that says A, B, and C. It says three things, A, B, and C. And then it says, oh, by the way, if A, B, and C are true, then you can't say anything about A or B or C, right? Now, Sajigaon and Maimonides both do that because they, 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 in both of their works, they, they take themselves to have proven that God exists. And then they say, as a consequence of this proof, I'm now going to prove to you you can't say anything about God. <laughs> it's, uh, it gets so bad or so apparent in the Mornavuchim, in the Guide to the Perplexed, the Rambam says something like this, God has to be above all species, 
right? So in, in Aristotelian science, you, you distinguish between different species is just like you do in, in contemporary biology you've got dogs and you've got cows and you've got right and then you can ar- arrange the species into into different genuses right so there's mammal and there's fish and there's whatever god says the rambam has to be above all genus and all species because he he's responsible for them all but the thing is being a cause is a, is is a genus is a species right <laughs> Right. So being a first cause must be. But so God, if if the cosmological argument's right, then you can't say that God is the first cause. But God, you only believe in him because he's the first cause of the cosmological. The Tractatus is doing a very similar thing. It says A, B and C. Oh, and by the way, if A, B and C are true, then you can't say A and you can't say B and you can't say C. And the Rambam never as far as I'm aware, puts up um, a sign that explicitly says, oh, by the way, this is all nonsense, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, but I hope it's helpful somehow. Right? He never says that explicitly, and neither does Sajiga on. But they were geniuses, and it's hard for me to think that they didn't recognize that there's a similar problem going on. What's interesting about the Tractatus is the Tractatus just owns up, just says it explicitly, right? Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, I've done the best a philosopher can do. By my own lights, it's nonsense. But I still think maybe it was somehow useful. So where does that take us then? I, I, I find it fascinating that the, the structural um, comparison between the Tractatus and the Amorin and the yeah. Book of Beliefs and Opinions, mm-hmm. but it just seems to make the problem worse. How, how, does it, how, does it, how, how do we answer the problem? How do we answer for Wittgenstein and how do we answer for Maimonides? And for Sadiagon. I can't remember who it was who said this, but it's so nice. In in academic studies of Maimonides, um, um, it's it's a widely recognized truism that for as many Maimonides, there are as many different Maimonideses as there are Maimonides scholars, because it is um it is a book that was on purpose, unlike the unlike the Mishnah Torah. Or, or the Parish Mishnahis, or basically any other work of Maimonides. He was such a clear writer and such an organised thinker. Um, I mean, organisation is a sine non of, of, of Maimonidean writing everywhere else. The Guide for the Perplex is purposefully badly organised. And, and the Rambam talks about that. Maimonides talks about that in the introduction of the book, why he did it like this on purpose. But it leads to the possibility of very, very different interpretations. So I do want to be careful. Uh, so, so, so somebody says, you know, this is my monodies. That's why it's called my monodies. This is my monodies. I don't, I'm not interested in your monodies. This is my monodies. And so I want to be careful. Um, I'm not sure that I can answer the question, what did my monodies really think he was doing? And I'm also not sure I can answer the question, what did Sajigon really think he was doing? I have a stronger opinion, I think, about what Wittgenstein was really doing. But the way, I, the, the way, I, the way this is relevant is as follows. The way I think um, um, drawing the comparison between the Rambam and Sajigan and the Wittgenstein is potentially useful is that there has been a lot of scholarship on the Tractatus trying to make sense of, of what it is that Wittgenstein's doing. How is that okay just to fess up towards the end of the book? Oh, by the way, all that was nonsense, but I hope it was helpful anyway. Bye. Toodaloo. <laughs> I don't like. Um, 
there are two main schools of Tractatus interpretation. And as your listeners will uh, soon hear, um, they can't both be right. They're mutually exclusive, right? So e- either one of them is right or the other is right about, ab- about what Wittgenstein was doing in the Tractatus. However, interestingly, I actually think that both readings of the Tractatus give rise to a slightly different type of negative theology, or, or they can, or they could give rise to a slightly different um, um, species of negative theology. And unlike the two readings of the Tractatus, which are mutually exclusive, I actually think both forms of these negative theology are uh, compatible and in their own ways attractive. And therefore, you can perhaps take them back to the Rambam and Sajigon and say, well, maybe this is the sort of thing they would have said if you'd have, if you'd have picked them up on, on the apparent contradiction in their work. Okay, So what, I'm, what I'll try and do first is just take you through the two schools of Tractator scholarship, and then we'll see how it maps onto different types of negative theology. Okay, So, oh, by the way, just com- complete um um tangent but you know where i think the f- the first negative theology is is uh rabbi hanina in in the, in masechet brachot i mean there are places in the bible that say you know uh, uh, um, my thoughts are not your thoughts my ways are not your ways so god is above comprehension but but I don't think there's anything in the Bible quite as explicit as Rabbi Hanina in the, in, in the Talmud, in, in Tractate Brachot, where he chastises a, 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 um, a prayer leader for adding adjectives into a description of God. And he says, you know, have you finished now? Like, were you able to like, come up with an exhaustive list of adjectives he says and then he says even the adjectives that we do use the ones that are actually written down in our liturgy i wouldn't say them were it not for the fact that we have to say something and that and that these were the ones that have been and he says he says imagine praising a king for all of the silver he has when in fact he's got loads of gold it's the wrong currency and rabbi hanina said even the words that we do use are offensive to God, but we have to use something, right? So, um, so it's not just Maimonides. It goes, you know, not just Sajigon, not just these kind of um, philosophers influenced by Greek ways of thinking, right? It goes right back into the into the into the Talmud. Anyway, um, the two where, where were we? Two schools of tractator study, right? Um, so the first view is the traditional view. It happens to be my view. This happens to be the way I understand the Tractatus, but that doesn't really matter for our purposes. Um, as, as I said, they're both, both readings are going to give rise to what I take to be complementary uh, um, species of negative theology. So the traditional view says this, says that Wittgenstein believed that sometimes, even when language fails to say anything it can still manage to show you something right um i think a a good way of seeing this um is in is in metaphor okay um there's a beautiful quote by um 
by by Donald Davidson um, on metaphor um, that I think really gets to the heart of this. Um, so Donald Davidson says something really quite beautiful about metaphor that I think could help to um, illustrate perhaps this distinction that Wittgenstein has between saying and showing on, on this traditional reading of the Tractatus. So you take, take a metaphor, even better, take a picture, right? He says, a photograph. How many facts or how many propositions are conveyed by a photograph? That's what Donald Davidson asks. None, an infinity, or one great unstable, uh, un- unstatable fact? Bad question. A picture, says Davidson, is not worth a thousand words or any other number. Words are the wrong currency to exchange for a picture. A picture can sometimes show you things that... Yeah, well, how many things did it show show me? Uh, well, if I could say in words, then maybe I wouldn't need the picture. And the reason Donald Davidson brings, uh, says that uh, in that context, he's talking about metaphor. So, so Romeo says of Juliet um, that she is the sun. Well, what what exactly did he mean? Well, Davidson thinks that's a bad question. If you want to know what he said, I'll tell you what he said. He said something obviously false. He said that Juliet is is that big burning ball of gas in the middle of the solar system. That's what he said, right? Right. But you know, but what was he getting at? Well, it's not clear that I could give you an exhaustive account of what he was getting at. She gives me light. But that's just another metaphor, right? Um, she sustains me. Well, that's also another metaphor that would need unpacking. Um, um, if you have a heliocentric um, view of the solar system, then maybe it means, which Shakespeare probably didn't, but it would mean something like uh, she, you know, everything revolves around her, right? She's the brightest star in the sky is very much what he's talking about in the context in Romeo and Juliet. Um Note that as I'm trying to unpack this metaphor, I'm just using other metaphors. And and what's more, each metaphor I use only gets at one kind of aspect of what it was I was. So what was I saying? I think Wittgenstein would say, well, what you said was was the obviously false thing about Juliet being a burning ball of gas. And it's not particularly complimentary either. What was I trying to show is, is a different kind of question. So once you've got this distinction, Wittgenstein thinks that his, you know, on the traditional reading of the Tractatus, Wittgenstein's point is this. If you study logic and language, logic and language will eventually show you their own limitations. Now, obviously, you can't say in language what the limitations of language are, because if you were to say it in language, then it wouldn't you wouldn't have reached the limit yet, right? The limit of the sayable can't be said because if it could be said, it, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't yet be the limit. Um, but Wittgenstein thought that in his attempt, that obviously failed to say where the limits of language were, he thought that he had succeeded in showing his readers all sorts of things 
uh, uh, fundamental things about the nature of reality, about the relationship between language and, and, and the world, about the nature of truth, about the, about the sovereignty of logic. He thought he'd managed to show you things, deep fundamental things um, uh, on all of those topics um, that, of course, he wasn't able to say. Um, so, so that's the traditional reading. And actually, within the traditional reading, there are two camps. There are those who adopt the traditional reading and go, well done, Wittgenstein. What, what an achievement. You managed to show what can't be said. Wow. And there are other people in the traditional reading. Russell is one of them. Uh, Frank Ramsey, uh, perhaps even more famously, is another, because Frank Ramsey translated the, the first English translation of the Tractatus, which was originally written in German. Um, and Frank Ramsey has this phrase. He says, Ramsey and Russell, they both thought the book was exceptional, but they thought it must be wrong about this. Uh, Russell says, Mr. Wittgenstein managed to says, say a great deal about what can't be said. And one feels there must be a, some sort of loophole. Um, and Frank Ramsey said, um, what, what can't be said can't be said and you can't whistle it either. Right. He, which is an attack on this distinction between saying and showing. Um, so. But so whether you, you take a positive view of, of this distinction between saying and showing and congratulate Wittgenstein for managing to kind of point beyond the limits of language um, or you think it was kind of a bit silly, right? Either way, that's the traditional reading. In later years, uh, 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 only I should say uh, after Wittgenstein died, so sadly he wasn't there to... Um, to kind of um, clear things up for us, but a very, very different reading of the Tractatus has emerged in, in recent years. Uh, I resent this, but it's called the resolute reading. I resent it because it makes it sound like my reading's not resolute, right? Um, the traditional reading is not resolute. Why is it called the resolute reading? Um, it's because they say that they are taking Wittgenstein more seriously at his word he said the book is nonsense right so if it's nonsense it doesn't succeed in show in saying anything it doesn't succeed in showing anything it's it's really nonsense it's just he could have just said blah 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 right sadly you know showing my cards again i think the, the problem here is that they read that one line of the Tractatus resolutely, but they don't read any other parts of the Tractatus or indeed anything that Wittgenstein wrote after the Tractatus about the Tractatus. I don't think they read any of that resolutely, right? Okay. Uh, an, uh, another, um, another name for this school, which I think helps to illustrate really what, what it's all about, is it's called the therapeutic reading of the Tractatus. And the idea is this, yeah, yeah, yeah. The book's really nonsense. Frank Ramsey's right. What can't be said can't be said, and it can't be whistled either. And actually, the, the, Wittgenstein knew that. Actually, Wittgenstein knew that. And Wittgenstein recognizes that his book is just is as nonsensical as saying blah, 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 blah. So what was the point? Well, the point was this. Before Wittgenstein, you know, immediately before Wittgenstein, there were these two phenomenal uh, philosophers of mathematics, language, and, and, and logic. In fact, in many ways, you know, the founders of those disciplines as they are today, right, in any recognizable form, Gottlob Frege, 
and and Bertrand Russell. Um, you know, it's it's not quite true to say that logic made no advances between Aristotle and Frege. There was a lot of active medieval logic that I think gets um, um, passed over too quickly by uh, current kind of philosophical um, um, retrospects on uh, retrospectives on on the history of philosophy. No, there was some pretty decent and interesting medieval logic. But it is true that between Aristotle and Frege, there was nobody who made anything like the revolution in logic. Uh, that, that Frege uh, precipitated, and 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 that Russell uh, with with Alfred White with Alfred White Northhead, in their co-authored Principia Mathematica, um, also helped to cement and solidify. These these are the fathers of a new a new type of uh, philosophy and a new type of of mathematics and logic, and Wittgenstein is addressing them according to the therapeutic reading, and he's saying this: Look. You think that you are able to provide a fundamental metaphysics that will tell us once and for all what number is, uh, what what an entity is, what an object is, what a language is, what truth and falsehood are. You think you can do it. You think that you can give us the definitions of these basic notions that we can run with and um, in, in so doing reveal the basic structure, the most fundamental structure of reality. Well, let me show you how wrong you are. Right. And the best way of showing how wrong you are is to provide an even better account than Russell and Frege had been able to give up until now of the relationship between language and the world. And to show that that best account collapses in on itself and what you learn and this is what this is why the nonsense is elucidatory what you learn upon finding that it collapsed into nonsense was do you know what some things just can't be done (laughs) right and and that's the therapy um there's there's a there's a there's a story uh rabbi nachman of breslov tells about a prince who'd gone insane and thought he was a chicken and he was pecking around the floor and jumping around and jumping around and and lots of different uh, experts came to try and help this chicken out and the chicken just the the, the prince just um not chicken the prince helped the prince to 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 no longer see himself as a chicken and and the the prince just ignored them all and, and no progress was made but then then you know the chacham comes the rebbe comes and the way he cures him is he gets down on the ground with him and starts pecking around and and pecking around. And from from there, from joining him down on the ground, he was able to convince him slowly, slowly to stand up and to kind of reacclimatize as a human rather than as a chicken. And 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 the Tractatus, according to the therapeutic reading, is basically saying, look, you guys are mad if you think this is going to work. But the only way for me to cure you of this madness, the only therapy that's going to really once and for all show us um, how futile it is to give a fundamental account of the very structure of reality. We can't do that. We human beings, we don't have the apparatus. And I'll show you that we can't by coming and joining you, <laughs> like, like the Rebbe does in that story by Rav Nachman. Um, 
so that's the that's the therapeutic reading. I find it hard to believe that um, the Rambam could have could have missed the seeming contradiction in the structure of the Guide to the Perplexed. I find it hard to believe that Sajigaon could have missed um, the, the same the same or an analogous problem in in uh, Emunot Vedayot. So what is going on? Well, I think one plausible thing is this. They're saying, look, of course, it's not true that you can't say anything about God because I've, I've just said something if I've said that you can't say anything about God. And, you know, it can't be true that sentences that have a grammar fail always to say anything about God because of his simplicity, because if that was the case, I wouldn't be able to say that it were the case. So that must be false. But just as the Tractatus thinks on the traditional reading, that there are some strings of words, which are not just false, but actually meaningless nonsense, that nonetheless manage to show you something that they that they fail to say, they perhaps tried to say but failed, right? That there is such a thing in language as trying to say a thing, failing to say it, but succeeding in showing it. Right? So so what we're doing, you know, and this is why I really I really don't like and find unhelpful. And perhaps, Benjamin, I can recruit you into my uh, 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 crusade against this. I find it unhelpful when in Jewish thought we make a, a hard and fast distinction between the rationalists and the mystics. It's unhelpful, right? And one of the reasons it's unhelpful is there is a type of mysticism there in the Morn of Achim, the Guide to the Perplexed. It might not be in any recognizable way Kabbalistic, and it might be anachronistic to say that it's Kabbalistic because it doesn't matter when you think the Zohar is written; that's not not relevant. What we what we do know is it wasn't revealed to the public uh, uh, and wasn't accessible to the Rambam, and therefore it would be anachronistic to say that the Monavuchim is Kabbalistic, but it could still be mystical. And one of the things you you one of the kind of um, watermarks of mysticism is a recognition that language and logic have limits and they don't exhaust even what we know. There may be things we know that we're unable to describe or even unable to, to, um, to subject to the sort of scrutiny that logic would like to subject things to. Right? Now, another reason why it's bad to make a hard and fast distinction between rationalism and mysticism is because it makes it look as if there can't be such a thing as rationalistic mysticism. But I think the Tractatus on the traditional reading is a work of like a logical work of mysticism. It's the study of logic from within showing you its own limitations, right? And I think on, on one plausible reading, of of apophatic medieval philosophers what they're doing is they're saying look we are going to systematically study divinity based on revelation and based on logic and philosophy and yet sometimes 
we may end up saying things which are quite clearly self-referentially incoherent. But that might just be because we're, we're banging up against the limits of lang- language and logic. And maybe there are some things which are self-referentially incoherent or false that nonetheless succeed in pointing to something. Um, so maybe, every, you know, every stage of the Rambam's argument is, is good as far as it goes. The conclusion is clearly false, and yet we don't get rid of any of the premises because the false conclusion may have been false, but it somehow managed to show us something. Um, it brought us into a place, you know, this, 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 doesn't quite, this isn't quite as tight uh, an analogy between the Tractatus and, and the Monovuchim, but one, but one reading of the Monovuchim, which is at least within this family of, of views, is the Rambam says in, in a very um, bizarre passage in the Monovuchim, he says, for every predicate, that's like for every adjective, right? For every adjective that you learn a proof that, that, it, that you learn a proof about that adjective that it doesn't apply to God. For every adjective that you do that for, you get one step closer to knowing God, right? So why, what? Perhaps the idea is this, that if you want to be able to experience God, you want to stand nochach p'nei Hashem, which is to say you want to stand in the presence of God. Perhaps that's not going to be a purely intellectual experience, right? It's like, you know, okay, now I've had an experience like that. What did it tell me? Well, that's similar to to asking, you know, how many facts does a picture represent? It's a bad question. What did it tell me? You can't put in words. So if I'm going to have an experience of God like that, to stand in the presence of God, I'm looking to have an experience that, that, um, that will leave language and logic behind. Well, maybe... You know, so it's not it's not a purely perhaps cognitive experience to stand in the, fe- the presence of Hashem. But perhaps there's some cognitive work I have to do before I'm ready to have an experience like that. And the cognitive work is, is clearing away certain falsehoods. And so there's a there's a there's a process in which you do that. You clear away certain falsehoods and then you might even find there are some falsehoods you can't clear away. But they might they, they might nonetheless point you. Uh, in the direction uh, of the ineffable, the direction of, of that which can't be said, and, and prime you as a person, as a human being, prime you for the having of experiences of God, right? Um, so that would be, broadly speaking, a negative theology that's, that's inspired by the traditional reading of the Tractatus, but which could be, you know, applied to come to terms with the negative theology of the Rambam, the negative theology of Sachigan, negative theology of, of numerous um, uh, Jewish philosophers through history. Um, but there's also the therapeutic reading of the Tractatus. And the therapeutic reading, I think, could inspire a slightly different form, form of negative theology, but a complementary form of negative theology. And it's something like this. Okay, but to explain this, I need to explain to you what the, I I think, to explain it well, I need to explain to you what the preface paradox is, right, or the paradox of the preface. Um, 
and I, and, I, and I don't want to keep your listeners forever. So I'll, I'll try and do it as brief a job as I can. But it, it's like this. Imagine a person has written a book with a hundred claims in it. And each claim of the book has been meticulously well researched. So the author is really confident about each and every claim that um, that it's true. Um, she'll go out on a limb on each one of them. OK, but she also knows that there's never been a book of this length that didn't have at least some error in it. Humans are fallible. And she knows that. And because she knows that she comes to a pretty firm belief based on good evidence, because the history of all other books, that at least one of these propositions must be false. Well, that's a very strange state of affairs. She's a reasonable person, and yet she seems to have come to believe a contradiction. The contradiction is she believes each and every one of these propositions, and she also believes that one of them's false. Well, hold on a minute. That's a contradiction. She's, she believes the conjunction of these claims, and she also believes that one of them is false. That, that's not com- that those two beliefs are not compatible, and yet she seems to have them both. Is she really rational? And my favoured solution to the paradox of the preface is some is is to say something like this which is like no she knows that every book ever written of this length has included a falsehood it gives her very good reason to believe that somewhere in this book is a falsehood but does that does does that really mean that she's willing to assert that one of them is false no she's not really willing to assert that one of them is false Rather, I think what she what she does is she carries on. She carries on believing in all of them, but she does so with a kind of newfound sense of humility. Right. And. I think that. Theology, when you reason really, really hard about God, you sometimes are going to come up with kind of logical puzzles like the one the Rambam found himself in and the one the Sajigon found himself in. Now, sometimes this is just evidence that you've made a mistake somewhere. So go back and like try and figure out where the mistake is and you'll sort it out. But sometimes it might not be possible given your current, you know, knowledge and evidence and whatever to, to sort, to sort this out. So do you go, oh, I believe in a contradiction. No, you just say, okay, I'm going to carry on believing in this theology that I believe in, but I'm going to go now, I'm going to carry on believing it, but with more humility. Um, and, and, and therefore that, that's a type of therapy. Cause we st- and that's, that's kind of where this cuts into the therapeutic reading of the, the Tractatus. You, you start, you, you, sometimes philosophers of religion, they sound as if, like they've got some special hotline to God as if they know exactly what the response to the problem of evil is or exactly what. No, we shouldn't be like that. Probably I'll be able to find a contradiction somewhere in your beliefs. Right. Um, you're human, you're fallible. So, so start acting like it. And what do I mean by that? Carry on proposing the things you propose, but with a slightly different tone. <laughs> Make them more like suggestions, make them more like, you know, um, I, I have a favorite piece of um, a few favorites, actually, pieces of Hasidus in the Ishbitzer, in the Meir Shaloach, which is becoming like 
it's becoming like the very cool thing to look at these days in Hasidus is actually very, very radical and very difficult, I think, to do justice to when when trying to understand what he's really saying. Um, but in one beautiful piece of, of, of the Meir Shiloach, this piece of Hasidic commentary on, on, the, on the Chumash, on the Pentateuch, he takes the verse in, in the book of uh, Leviticus, Vayikra, that says, Im if you walk in my statutes, and he, he, he twists it in a very Hasidic uh, way. He says, when you walk in my statutes, when you keep the halacha, do it, but im, with the aspect of the word if in mind. That's to say that you, you, you are supposed to adhere fastidiously to Jewish law, right? Don't compromise one iota, but recognize that even that is surely just an approximation of, of God's will, because God's will is ines- inestimable. You can't put into words God's real will. So carry on, but do it with a certain amount of humility, right? You're, you are in the service of a God who you can't hope to fully understand. And to realize that is to recognize, you know, it doesn't mean like I think Wittgenstein is taken to have been, to, taken to have uh, been saying by the resolute or therapeutic reading the tractatus. It's not to say, oh, so let's just give up. Let's give up philosophy. No, carry on, but carry on with humility. Recognize the reason we're doing theology is we're trying the best we can with the limited equipment we have to get to know God. Um, but as uh, Rev Albo said, right, uh, Rev Yosef Albo, uh, following Crescus again, God, God has an infinite number of attributes. This is the complete reversal of the Maimonides saying that God is so simple. Crescus and Albo are of the opinion that God has an infinite number of attributes. Um, they, they're somehow, there's some deep sense in which they're all one for Rav Albo and Crescus, but there's some logical sense in which they're infinite. So you can't come to know them all. So therefore, however much you know of God is always just an infinitesimal fragment of something infinitely bigger right so you're in the situation like i say it's like you're trying to write a you're trying to write a a book report about a novel that you haven't finished reading it's dangerous work because you know i don't know if anybody of your readers i'm sure some of your listeners will have, have read for instance the first harry potter novel right so snape is a character in that book who looks like he's really really a bad guy and it's only at the end of the book that it turns out that he was you know he had harry's welfare in you know in mind he was a good guy although in the series it gets more complicated and there are twists and turns but in that one book okay so if you hadn't read the last couple of chapters of that book and you read your book report you would come out with a completely skewed view of snape now you wouldn't necessarily be wrong on any of the things you report that Snape did. Snape really did this, Snape really did that, Snape really did this. But only in the context of the whole book can you come to a deep understanding of what those facts mean, what their significance is. What Now, we're always going to be in that sort of position vis-a-vis God. There are things we know about God. We can know that he's good. We can know that he's wise. We can know that he commanded the Torah to us. All these things we can know. But as soon as you recognize there's an infinite number of things you don't know about God, 
then even the things you do know, you need to be kind of humble about because you don't know how significant they really are and how they fit into a greater picture. And I kind of get that from from the resolute reading of the Tractatus, which is that sometimes it's important for us to come face to face with our own intellectual fallibility. And, and perhaps to a certain degree, that's what the Rambam and, and Rav Sajigon were doing as well. Right? They weren't perturbed by the fact that their logical argument led them to an obvious contradiction. They weren't perturbed. Well, why weren't they? But they should have been perturbed. They just said, oh, there's a contradiction here. This is how we sort it. No, they weren't perturbed. Why? Because of course we're going to come up with contradictions because we're fallible and we're doing the best we can to figure out something that, you know. Um, So even though the resolute reading uh, is either right or wrong and the traditional reading is either right or wrong, I think both of the kind of negative theologies that that I've tried to give you inspired by them, they could both be right um, together, could be that that, um, the negative theologians in the Jewish tradition believed that somehow following this via negativa, this negative path, would lead you in the direction of things that can't be said, that it would point beyond the limits of language as a process. That's the apophaticism of showing right the the traditional reading of the tractatus but at the same at the very same time and in the very same breath they could have thought that the experience of recognizing how your best theology can only ever end up with certain puzzles that can never be resolved right to the atheist that's proof positive that 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 theism is is not true but to the theist, it's just to be expected, right? Because what we're doing is we're trying to reason about something that's that's that will always be beyond us, and and that doesn't that doesn't mean that we should stop. It just means we should do it with humility. Rabbi Dr. Liebens, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit us on Twitter for updates on every episode. Thank you.